For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. It could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. This episode of the Drake Cast is sponsored by the fine folks at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. The other day, I had the pleasure of sitting down with this guy. Doug McKnight uh, works here at Yellow Dog, Bahamas and Honduras program director. And Doug was about to head out on an adventure. We're going to go check out a new uh, new destination on Andros Island, Bahamas tomorrow. What are, you, what are you hoping to go find down there? Anything we can. But it's going to be kind of exploring some, some new water, hopefully chasing big bonefish. Hopefully, you know, knock on wood, maybe we maybe get a couple cracks at some resident tarpon or God forbid, see a, see a permit. Um, and you know, nothing else. You know, maybe play around with some sharks and kudas if the weather's bad or, you know, we'll see. It's a good backup plan, right? Yeah, yeah, there's always something to fish for. Yellow Dog is the leader in fly fishing travel, and they hold on to this coveted spot by continuously finding new destinations to feed your demand for bigger, brighter, fresher fish. Fly fish the world with Yellow Dog. Alrighty, on to the show. So you guys remember Rex, right? But yeah, the bighorn was sick. It was, what, two days of fishing? Then that float that you guys heard about was crazy. Crazy, crazy. He was on the fly fishing film tour road crew. And we spent a lot of time together, whether in cars or junky hotel rooms or on rivers all across the country. And one common theme for Rex that he always came back to was his favorite fish. And we had some absolutely insane, insane days of fishing. 24 to 36 inch fish were very attainable. And to talk about Rex's passion, I called him up the other day. He's actually in remote Alaska about to start his guiding season. Just on the, the normal work ground, getting everything set up. We've got engines to deal with, moving Connex trailers around. But just kind of getting on the swing of things. Everything's, everything's shaping up to be a good year. I think we got clients coming Friday. But this topic was near and dear enough to his heart that he was willing to take a couple of minutes and burn up some internet in order to talk to me. Where do you want to start? Like you're at, at the beginning, how this all, all began? Yes. Let's start at the beginning when Rex was a wee middle schooler living in Connecticut. One of my friend's dads had some kind of center console. He wasn't all that serious about fishing, but he would take my friend out occasionally. So I went out with them and got into a couple just completely, completely crazy floods. This was like two different times I went. I was probably like 13 or 14, and it was just like dumbstruck. Going out in the sound and seeing just acres and acres of fish just like swirling on bait was just, I mean, it, it just looked insane. I've never seen anything like it. It was just crazy. After that experience, my dad and I go wade fish like one of the jetties or go hit some of the beaches that were in the area. And though Rex had other responsibilities, he kept chasing these fish. You got up at four in the morning and you were out there. I think I told you about the whole senior internship thing, right? It was meant to be like a very serious thing. You were supposed to go work like 30 hours in an office or do something that was kind of like career driven. I was obsessed with fishing at this point, so my goal was to do as little serious work as possible. I came up with the scheme of being a fishing guide intern. Every single day for the last five weeks of senior year, which is basically like peak time for striper fishing, we'd go to the beach. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about stripers. Shorthand for striped bass. 
Historically, Atlantic striped bass range from Canada's St. Lawrence River all the way down to coastal Louisiana. Much like a steelhead, these fish are born in freshwater, run out to the ocean to grow, and return to their natal rivers to spawn. What still makes them appealing? For me, as far as just like a species to target, I, I just love the kind of dynamic experience that they offer. So there's just so many different ways to catch a striper. They act so differently in different scenarios. Uh, and it's a complete puzzle. Like This was my really my first true saltwater species that I target consistently. I mean, you can find them on flats in six inches of water, chasing sand eels, picking up crabs. You can find them offshore, eating 12 to 14 inch bait fish. They school up and herd bait, and the spectacle of it is just like nothing else. I just love that kind of overarching picture of what a striper offers to a fisherman, not just a fly fisherman. Where would you be now if you had actually gotten a real internship in the last five weeks of your senior year of high school? It, it really has gone full circle. It is, it is really fun to think about because I'm sitting in Alaska right now. I, I, I like to think I'd still be doing the same stuff. And while wild runs of stripers have dwindled over the past few centuries, states began stocking stripers in places around the U.S. and really around the world. Coastal California, Lake Powell, as well as throughout inland lakes in the southern United States. Rex had one more story to share. The first time I caught a striper was not actually a true and true ocean run striper. It was in Georgia on Lake Lanier. I think it was like I think it was like my sixth birthday. My dad took me out on a trip with a guy there, and <laughs> I, they're three of the biggest stripers I've ever caught in my life were on that trip. They were it was like a 40, a 35, and like a 32-pound fish. With the image of 30-pound fish dancing in my head, Clyde and I decided to head inland in search of striped bass. Seeing that we were already in the southeast and it was a little early for the wild fish to be re-entering the rivers, we figured we'd have our best bet by fishing a stocked lake. And so on a whim, I googled South Carolina striper fly fishing and found this guy. Preston, good to meet you, man. This is our guide, Preston. He's in his mid-50s, sports a shiny dome and a telltale southern drawl. And when he saw Clyde, he really let it all hang out. Does anybody laugh at you in that car? Oh, everybody laughs at me in that car. And they make you drive that car. They don't let you drive another car. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's part of my contract. I have to spend X nights a year in Walmart parking lots in that car. And along for the ride was a friend of mine. We had a London broil and um, like scalloped potatoes. For breakfast. For breakfast, yeah. This is Matt Rice. He's from the area. And as a matter of fact, he grew up on the lake we were going to be fishing. Y'all ready? Uh, yeah, we're going to grab some water. I got bottled waters. Preston spends half the year guiding redfish down in Louisiana, but during the spring and summer, he lives on the South Carolina-Georgia border where he takes clients out in search of striped bass. You know, and most of my fishing, we go out with bait, and, and I had many days in the last week or so that we'll put 40 fish in the box in an hour when it gets right. But he's also a fly fisherman and said it might be fun to have us out and do a story together. Have y'all eaten anything yet? But before we could get on the water, we had to fuel up with some local fare. 
I'm just gonna run in and get a biscuit to go. Do y'all want a biscuit? It's sort of a dive. My kind of place. Hey. Bacon and cheese. Bacon and cheese. Uh, I'm good. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> this place was the Carolinian roadside greasy spoon that I had dreamed about. All the local fishing guides were sipping coffee and chattering about how the bite had been. There were lots of suspenders, completely unironic Carhartt hats, and beer bellies galore. You starting damn rumors. You need to stop that shit. So do you guide up here as well then? Yeah, I've been guiding for 23 years. This is my 23rd year of guiding. Better on the way now. Hey, you right. See y'all. We got our grub and said our goodbyes. The grease had soaked through the paper bag before we even got in the car. Ooh, that wind is... Man, I thought the wind was going to die down to nothing this morning. One thing is we probably won't see another boat all morning. Yeah, pretty crowded boat launch. Yeah. When we made it to the put-in, there wasn't another boat in the parking lot. Today, we'll motor through the waters of Lake Hartwell, chasing stripers on the fly with Captain Preston. While we're on the water, we'll learn a little bit of the history of the area, and most interesting of all, discuss whether or not this fishery is healthy. And I don't mean that in an ecological sense, but in relation to our health as humans. Stick around and you might avoid getting sick. After a 10 minute ride up the lake, we dropped the trolling motor. So we're looking for action on the surface. Oh yeah, there was one on up. About 200 yards up there. Fish rolled intermittently, but there definitely wasn't a flurry of activity. Bait was not being busted. As we waited for the action to pick up, Preston kept us entertained with a little bit of family history. When I was a young guy, I fished the river below this lake. We would fish 20 miles below Hartwell Dam. The story of the Lake Hartwell area is punctuated by periods of development that forever altered the landscape and the fisheries. While most of the rivers in the southeast were dammed during the Great Depression as part of FDR's New Deal, the wild rivers of western South Carolina weren't neutered until the late 50s, when the Corps of Engineers began damming every section of river possible. They did this for the purpose of flood control and hydroelectric power production. But one of the unintended consequences of this dam proliferation was that some of the rivers under these dams became tailwaters that were able to support populations of trout including the Savannah River below Lake Hartwell, which the state began stocking with browns and rainbows. Uh, they dammed it up in 62, the year I was born. And my dad, by the late 60s, was fishing there, and they were stocking trout. Mm -hmm. In the spring, we'd strip these big black stonefly nymphs, and they'd just crush them. But a lot of little, you know, 18 atoms is what I'd probably caught most of my big fish on. Back then, 5X tippet was two pound test. Now 5X is almost six pound test, but I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And like many tailwaters in the Southeast, water would only go through the dam when the authorities wanted to generate power, meaning that the river downstream would go from nearly dry 
to absolutely raging in a matter of minutes. But if the water came on, even 20 miles down, you would, they would cut five generators on at once, and they wouldn't give you any warning, they'd just cut them on. And you'd just have to be watching upriver. It's like a half mile wide, and it's 200 yards of frothing white water, then it's 15 feet deep, slick as glass, just a push. <laughs> you didn't want to get caught in it. Pikes had a great uncle that drowned when it came up. Well, he was already dead. He had a bad heart and he dropped his nitroglycerin pills and I think he'd had a heart attack before it came up. It was spooky. And Preston has fond memories of this time. We used to do a trick where we would go buy a box of crickets. <laughs> you could buy a box of crickets for, you know, 10 or $15 for a thousand crickets. And I'd get at the head of the pool and toss crickets in and my dad would throw something called a latort hopper. You know, and these big trout would just be eating those crickets. <laughs> That's cheating. It's not as bad as fishing with bait, but it's a bait and switch. How big were the fish that were in there that you were Well, catching? if you fished up close to the dam where they stock it, you'd catch stockfish. But where I fished 20 miles from Hartwell Dam, we never caught one that wasn't a holdover that would be 16, 17 inches. And a 17-inch fish would be like that big around, like a football. But I mean, they were monsters. But this great fishing didn't last for long. In the 80s, they built another dam downstream of this premier trout fishery. And what had been this stretch of the Savannah River turned into another lake with little water flow and poor trout habitat. When did they make this change? 1983, I was a junior at Georgia and I spent more nights on the bank of the river than I did at my apartment or my fraternity house. It was tragic. It's still, you know, I think about it because there at the end it just was getting better and better. A lot of these tailwaters go through like a metamorphosis. The insect hatches get better and better. But while the trout fishery below Lake Hartwell came to an end, the striped bass fishery on the other side of the dam was doing pretty darn well. So Preston just made a change of location, and he now spends his time upstream of his childhood haunt chasing a different stocked species. Stripers and hybrids. Hybrids a half white bass, half striper. Everything stocked here. They used to put two or 300,000 a year. The last few years, they've put like a million and a half, two million. At what size? Fingerling. But they figured out how to stock them and win and, and to get a real good success rate. With this background information at the forefronts of our mind, we continued looking for rising stripers until... See that yeah. one past him? Yeah. Again. Again? Yeah, and again, and again yeah. And again. And again. Did you yeah. see that? Yeah, it's, it's going off. Convinced of their presence, Matt and I moved to set up our fly rods. Preston, however, had something else in mind. I hate to get y'all to do this, but we're going to try something. He had a tank full of live bait and wanted to make sure we caught some fish. Deciding to go with the flow, we gave in. I'm going to put a bait on here. They're here. Let's catch one first, and uh... What are you hooking on there? A blueback herring. All right, get him down, put your tip down, push it, and then put your thumb there, and just ease it to the bottom. When it hits bottom, stop it. Look at the graph. Oh yeah. Those are all fish. See it on 3D? Can you just explain why you're doing that? Just to, it'll 
gets the fish. They, I, I can't tell you why they come under the boat, but a lot of times when you do that, they'll get under the boat. It's just a vibration. And what are you using to do this? A pool cue. <laughs> a short one, like from a kid's pool. Yeah, well, the main thing is it's got that rubber tip. Yeah. Well, not the most engaging fishing in the world, it is kind of fun to feel the live bait get all worried when a predator approaches. But still, this is a fly fishing podcast. There we go. Just oh. come into him, but make that rod double. You miss him? Yeah. <laughs> it's too quick. Oh, uh, nope, I've got... Is Real this... Lift. I'm not sure if this is a fish or just the bait. Real. Real. <laughs> it's a little bitty fish. Not what we want. Look at that. Yeah, but... That's not the size we were wanting at all. That's a baby. Hey, a hey, a fish is a fish. It's been a while since no, I've caught one. We don't even count that. <laughs> in the next 20 minutes, we pulled a few more in. What you got? You're smiling. <laughs> That's a little nicer one. <laughs> you brought your fancy camera? We're going to have to get the fly rod ready. <laughs> And get your camera ready. I mean, I hate to say it, but in the world of journalism, it's not uncommon to put a fly in there. And <laughs> While giving in to Preston's bait fishing tendencies, we declined to participate in his ethically questionable photography methods. I mean, we could use bait, we could just fill the cooler up. We weren't even keeping the fish, which was uncommon for Preston. But it also brought up an interesting point about the fish in Lake Hartwell. So Matt's dad actually is a fisheries biologist around here. So your dad's a fishery biologist. Well, he's an environmental toxicologist with a background as PhD in marine biology. What does he think? Don't eat them? Yeah, I, I've always grown up being told not to touch one of Not those. to eat them? Yeah. My dad said some, it could be safe, but you never know. Like, if you're getting a big fish, then it's probably... And just as we were talking about the safety of eating the fish from the lake, we noticed another boat coming around the corner. So right now we are watching uh, what I'm assuming is the local fishing game doing some electroshocking. We just saw him scoop up a fish, and we might go over and chat with him, see what's going on. How's it going, folks? What are you guys up to? Catching fish the real way. <laughs> <laughs> We thought these folks may have been with Fish and Game collecting stripers for broodstock to take back to the hatchery and propagate. Can you just tell me a little bit about the shocking setup you have in the front of the boat? So this is, you got your metal droppers up here, so this is your anode. And the boat hole is the cathode. And you hit the pedal and fish come up, they get stuck temporarily. Net them, put them in the live well. They snap out of it pretty quick. Let's say you stun one and you aren't able to scoop it. How long until it's swimming again? Seconds. Seconds. Yeah, once yeah. it gets out of the field, it's gone. You gotta get them quick. But we were pretty far from correct. And can you just tell me what you're doing with these fish you're catching? Yeah, so we're out here with Duke Energy, obviously. Um, what we're doing is we're collecting largemouth bass, black bass, and catfish. So y'all aren't messing with stripers and hybrids. No, I sure. told them y'all were doing the stripers and hybrids. No, I wish we could say we were, but we're not. We are Duke Energy, Duke Energy. boys. 
Uh, we're collecting bass and catfish uh, to bring back to the lab to test for radiological isotopes because of the nuclear plant. In addition to all the dams in the area, just a few miles above the next dam up sits Oconee Nuclear Station, which also generates power for the area. What, what have you guys been finding as of late in these fish? Uh, nothing. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're fine. Well, right, thanks for letting us bother you. That's fine, yeah, absolutely. Best of luck catching fish. Thank you. We're going to need it today. It's pretty And while the fish they were catching may not be showing any effects of radiation, that doesn't mean that the fish Preston regularly catches are safe to eat. Stop. Already, this moment of pseudo-suspense just screams for an ad break. But when we come back, we'll meet a scientist, hear why these fish may not be so safe to consume, and if Captain Preston lets us, maybe even catch a couple of them on a fly rod. Stick around. This episode of The Drake Cast is sponsored by the brilliant minds behind Scott Fly Rods. The other day, I dropped my junky little rowboat in a nearby pond with the single goal of getting some fish to eat topwater flies. Armed with my 9.5 foot, 8 weight Scott Radian, the fish didn't stand a chance. Oh, big splash. Oh, that one Whether I'm mending an indicator on the Missouri River, stripping streamers on Kodiak Island, or hooking largemouth bass in my backyard, I can always count on my Scott Radiant to help get the job done. There we go. What do we got? Bass? To try one of these fine line-checking devices for yourself, visit your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. We're also sponsored by the good folks at the Appalachian Mountain Club's main wilderness lodges. What brings me to the AMC and why I love working for the AMC is not only the recreation part that I was talking about, but the education and the conservation piece. This is Katie Yakubowski, the events director for the three wilderness lodges in Maine. And part of that is restoring brook trout habitat. I think it's like 97% of the native wild brook trout habitat is in Maine. And it is basically on our property. We have a lot of wild native brook trout habitat that's been there forever. And these sustaining populations, we don't stock fish on our property. I like to say our little ponds don't have big trophy fish in them, but there are self-sustaining populations and beautiful brook trout. People love coming out to our lodges and to the remote ponds to fly fish. To get a taste of the wilds of Maine and the brook trout that have called it home for millennia, visit outdoors.org forward slash drake. It's there that you can find all the information you'll need about the AMC's wilderness lodges in Maine. Alrighty, back to the show. We left off discussing whether or not the fish in Lake Hartwell are safe to eat. To get a little more into this topic, I called up a local specialist. I guess officially I'm Dr. Charles D. Rice. I'm at Clemson University. I'm a uh, full professor, tenured full professor here at the university. Uh, part of my research is environmental toxicology, and the other part, basically, I'm an immunologist. So I study the immune system, and much of that research is related to the effects of contaminants in the environment on on the immune system and general health of uh, all organisms that are exposed. So that's basically what I do. And Dr. Rice is actually the father of Matt, the other angler on the boat. Regardless of their relation, Dr. Rice does some really fascinating work with fish around the U.S. Basically, he goes to polluted places, catches fish. Moving forward, what this is about is I use those fish as uh, 
canaries in the coal mine. Meaning if the fish are sick, say they have high frequencies of cancer, he then interprets those illnesses to how clean the water is and how the pollution could be affecting humans. At the end of the day, humans are just another kind of animal. And the immune systems of, of fish, of most wildlife, are not dissimilar to humans, for example. And that's one reason why I use all these different kinds of animals, because um, I know the basic aspects of our immune systems are all the same. You know, if I see something untoward going on with fish, then I would be very alarmed and be concerned for the humans in that area as well. And the reason we're sharing this information is because Dr. Rice has concerns about the health of the fish, and therefore the humans, in and around Lake Hartwell. And could you just say where you live? Yes, I I live in Clemson, South Carolina, and uh, Clemson sits right on Lake Hartwell. And about 60 years ago, there was a factory on one of the tributaries to Lake Hartwell. There was a um, power company called Sangamo that from 1955 to 1976 manufactured uh, what we call transformers or capacitors. And these were used at the top of telephone poles. You saw those all over the country at one time. What they basically did was uh, they needed something that was going to contain a lot of heat. So you need something that's heat resistant. And so these compounds called polychlorinated biphenyls. Also known as PCBs. And these compounds are not great for humans or really any wildlife. There's a saying in toxicology, dose makes the poison. So at very low doses, low levels of exposure, you may have developmental effects. Uh, There may be neurological effects. It also impacts on the immune system. So the immune system may not be working the way it should. At higher levels, um, it's known as a reproductive toxicant. So it can just basically lead to to low birth weight or no birth weight or, or developmental issues. And the factory upstream was dumping tons of these PCBs into the tributary of Lake Hartwell. Well, I'll just, I'll just let you know the total amount of PCBs uh, estimated to go into the system was about 400,000 pounds. You know, that's a lot of contaminant that went into the lake system. And these PCBs don't break down very easily. So they're what's called persistent organic pollutants. So they stay in the system quite a bit. These PCBs move from the sediment to the water, and they get into the complete food chain. There's even been a study showing that these PCBs move from the lake and the tributaries right up through the aquatic insects. And then, of course, those get consumed by something else, and then something eats them. And and these compounds just, they bioaccumulate. So at the upper level, uh, say the food chain, where you get into the largemouth bass and the stripers and that and so forth, you get, you're starting to get uh, levels that are considered a problem for human consumption. As someone who lives very near the lake, did you ever eat the fish coming out of Lake Hartwell? No way. <laughs> and can you explain personally why that was? I, I did, I, you know, you, it's like putting your hand on a hot stove. You know, why, why would you do it? Uh, I mean, I, living here on Lake Hartwell especially, I just... And knowing what I know, I I would not want to to consume fish. You got a smile on your face again. This is another nice one. No. Oh, there's another big one below him. 
You heard what I said the record was? 62? That's far enough to be told him right there. Towards the end of our morning on Lake Hartwell, we moved to the northernmost section of the lake and finally convinced Preston to let us fish yeah, flies. Yeah. So well, get that fluke. Oop. And, uh, I'm going to set up another fly rod. I strung a sinking line through my eight-weight Scott Radian and tied a chartreuse clouser on the end of it. What do you do, a pop-pop and stop? Yeah, just a little strip. Yeah, how long? You know, I like to pause at least a few seconds. It depends on how deep it is. Mm -hmm. And how long on the strips? Maybe a foot or two. Oh! You just ran that bait all the way to the <laughs> there. Oh! Did you see him? They're, they're, oh, yeah. They're you see all, all those flashes? I just had like four fish hit it that flip. Oh, yeah. You saw that? Oh, for sure. That was awesome. You want to see what those fish are a sucker for? That they're not going to turn down? Preston reached into the live well and began spiking the bait into the water. Naturally, stripers came over to check things out. Though I'm technically against chumming, I couldn't resist and decided to cast into the frenzy. There we go. Oh, it's Thank you, sir. Well, I mean, I hate to even throw this bait out there, y'all. Don't seem to care about catching a whole bunch on bait. <laughs> no, not really. Y'all got a few. And we had a pretty good time catching them. When I asked Preston about his fish consumption habits on the lake, he told me this. Yeah, do you eat the fish from this lake? I'll eat crappy. I don't eat a lot of fish out of here. I uh, rather eat stuff like lobster. And... <laughs> Fancy man over here. You know, I've got friends that are fishery biologists, lifelong, and, and some of them say the same thing, not to eat them. And that's what I tell my customers, that if they catch a big one, take a picture and let it go, that if it's a two or three pounder, and they're only eating the flesh. Which isn't bad advice. Looking forward, I decided to ask Dr. Rice what the future holds for not just the fish or the fishermen in Lake Hartwell, but for this entire area. To be honest with you, it's interesting that Clemson University has a world-class graduate program in environmental toxicology I participate in that program, and some of us have worked with the PCBs on there, but there's such a low concern about PCBs right now beyond consumption advisory that there's just not much interest in terms of funding, that that be research funding, to even pursue that. And do you think that's appropriate? Yeah, I do in many ways, because at this point, what else, what else can we do? I mean, it was, it was a huge insult to the environment, back in when Sangamo released those into the environment. But by all thoughts and processes and, and intentions, we've done all we can do to remediate those PCBs. They're, at some level, they're going to be in the, in the food chain for a long time, but it's becoming less and less and less over time of a problem. But things aren't all hunky-dory. But again, they, these PCBs don't break down very easily, so they, when they leave the lake, they have to go somewhere else. You know, so they, they may leave the sediments, get into the aquatic insects, 
which get into the you know the fish that feed on those, and then the raccoons and the foxes and predatory birds and so forth. And then when they cease to live or whatever and decompose up in the higher grounds, then that that PCB load gets distributed now into a new place. If that makes sense. Dr. Rice offered a pretty logical approach to the future of Lake Hartwell. You know this this lake system with all the recreational fishing and water activities and the boating industry and real estate, uh, this, is, this, this Lake Hartwell is absolutely critical to the local economy. So you can't just shut down the lake and, and remove everyone. I mean, it's just, we're here, the lake is here, the PCBs are here, we're here, and you gotta have to, have to coexist. Um, but again, it goes back to the beginning. At the end of the day, you cannot prevent someone Who's going to stop some local fisherman that needs to fish to feed his family? So it's going to happen, but all you can do is advise and say, that's really not a good idea. But in Lake Hartwell, we have other issues. Any day you could go out there and you could see an oil slick or a gas slick. That's a problem. You probably have never thought about this, but with the numbers of people on Lake Hartwell during the summers, who are out there in the water using their sunscreens. Sunscreens contain a lot of what's called zinc oxide. Zinc can be toxic to the environment. So, you know, you put hundreds of thousands of people in the water with their sunscreen coming off, you got a problem there as well. Here's another thing you don't think about. When you look at I-85, which crosses Lake Hartwell, millions of cars pass that site every single year. And every time they do that, some of their tires are actually wearing off, and that that tire dust, as it's called, gets into the air and falls right into Lake Hartwell. And you know, so these microplastics, micro rubbers, as they're called, that's that's an issue too. So it's more than just PCBs in Lake Hartwell. It's it's the same issues we have with every other body of water. We humans love water, and uh, we tend not to take care of it as well as we should. We humans love water, and uh, we tend not to take care of it as well as we should. A couple quick thank yous before we move on to previews of our next episode. Many thanks to the Rice family for lending their knowledge and friendship throughout the making of this episode. Rex, I hope the guide season has started with a bang. And finally, a thanks to Captain Preston for taking us out. I'm not going to give his full name because at the end of our time together, he basically asked me not to send fly fishing business his way. His argument being that it's much easier to fill up a cooler with a limit of bass in two hours than it is to guide fly fishers all day for the same pay. I guess I can't argue with that logic. But anyways, here's a quick tease of the episode to come. I'm meeting a friend. We're going to go turkey hunting tomorrow morning in Georgia, so I'm going to drive over there. Whereabouts? It's like two hours from here. Where? I don't remember exactly. He just sent me GPS coordinates. You turkey hunting, you got to be there to crack it down. We're going to turkey hunt for a couple hours and then go fish for some rookies on a small creek. There's not a lot of brook trout in Georgia. You must be going way high. You must be going to a high elevation. Come back if you want to hear about Brookies and Turkey. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast. <laughs>